I want you to know that I had fully anticipated completing this passage. However, if you've been with me very long, you know that somehow I can get stuck. So we got stuck. We're going to look at two and a half verses this morning. And uh, they are they are so rich that it's just... It's like, a, it's like being at a, a feast, a banquet. So just look with me. We're just going to read the entire Mary's song once again, and then we'll just look at the first two and a half verses this morning, and Lord willing, we'll finish it next time. Mary said, My soul praises the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. What a a rich hymn, what a rich song. And it's, it's rich in its theology, it's rich in its expressions. This song of praise uttered by Mary and, and remember, this comes at a place where all these incredible things are coming right to a, an apex, if you will, in her life. Uh, the announcement by Gabriel, the trip to see her, her, her relative, and, and, and the, the proclamation of the relative, and the baby in her womb leaps, and all of these things confirming God's word to her. And she breaks forth in this hymn of praise. How, how could she not praise him how could she not thank god for this great great grace extended to her so this song that she sings is an expression of a number of things it's an expression of three things first it's an expression of her faith in god she is as you read the passage she is expressing her faith in god but not only her faith it's an expression of her love for god and you can just it just it just reeks with with love, if you will. But also, it's an expression of her deep understanding of Scripture. I suggest to you that you and I could not speak this way unless we had a deep understanding of Scripture. And it's Scripture that reveals to us the very nature and character and goodness of God. You know that. So when you, when you know God and you know Him through the Scriptures, you have a rich, deep understanding you, you, all you can do is, is, is praise him and thank him. And you recount, you recount his great works, his great deeds. You have great hope because the scriptures give them to you. And, and Mary, even though she's a, a young girl, 12, 13, 14 years old, probably at the most, she's no doubt had, been, had spent her life growing up uh, in the, in the, in the uh, synagogue and in, in hearing the word of God preached hearing the word of God being uh, commented on by the rabbis and by the members of the congregation. No doubt she grew up in a godly home. 
And so she has for years listened and heard and taken to heart. And, and at this moment in her life, she breaks forth in this psalm of, of praise and, and worship to God. Absolutely, absolutely amazing. Wonderful. And in verses 46 through 48, the, the first half of verse 48, two and a half verses, Mary's praise, again, we, as we begin to unwrap this passage, her praise, particularly in these verses, is characterized, I think, by four significant elements. The first of those elements, we find that her praise, her worship, is internal, as opposed to being external. It's internal. It starts inside. It's with, with her soul and with her spirit. Do you see that? We talk about you know, loving each other. I love you with all my heart. What are we talking about? We're talking about it, it's coming from down deep inside of me. It, it's real. Now, we know when people really love us and they communicate that to us, words are important. And we know when, when they're not being sincere. We know when it's just surface, isn't it? Well, here she's talking about praising and rejoicing with her soul and her spirit. This refers simply to the, to the entire inner person. Those words, soul and spirit, uh, in the context of the Old Testament, the gospel is really largely written in the context of Old, Old Testament culture. Uh, those words are interchangeable. They're not defined differently necessarily as the Apostle Paul would later on in the New Testament. So when you see soul and spirit, those are interchangeable terms. But they really do refer to the inner person. Last time I, I reminded you of Jesus' words when he was having the interview with the woman at the well, John chapter 4, you recall that? And Jesus, in that interview, characterizes true worship and true worshipers. He said, true worshipers will worship how? In spirit and in truth. So Mary, this is an example of worshiping in spirit. It's with her spirit and her soul. It's internal. It, it really is uh, uh, her whole being, uh, mind, emotion, will. And there are times when you must bring your will to bear on, on worship, isn't there? When you don't feel like it, when your body is sluggish, when you're not really particularly feeling like worship in, a, in any kind of a significant way. And you just, you just have to make your hands clap. You make yourself raise your hands. You make yourself, but it, it, because it emanates from inside. Am I making sense? I gave you a verse last week and encourage you to rehearse the verse throughout the week and maybe memorize it and, and use it as, a, as a, a psalm of praise for yourself. Do you, anybody recall the verse I gave you last week? Thank you, Fred. Psalm 103, verse 1. Did you memorize it? Do you remember this verse? What is it? That's right. Look at it. It's on the, it's on the board. Say it with me. Bless the Lord. Now notice this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all my what? inmost being praise his holy name do you see how david praises god worships god what internally all everything's coming out it starts in our starts in our 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 our, our motion our mind and our will 
It, it, it just simply, worship starts there. And this is an example of Mary's worship. And this, of course, is opposed to shallow, superficial worship. And I submit to you, shallow, superficial worship, just going through the motions, just pretending, uh, is, is absolutely intolerable to God. When we worship Him, He wants us to worship Him. When we praise Him, He wants us to praise Him. Is He worthy of our worship? Is He worthy of our praise? Absolutely. And when we do so, He wants us to do it with all of our being, as opposed to just kind of going through the motions. But shallow, superficial worship is absolutely intolerable to God. Listen, listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter 29. The Lord rebuked the Israelites. He rebuked them for their external ritualistic perversion of true worship. He says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are what? Far from me. You see how God differentiates this internal worship from shallow external worship. He said, I don't have their heart. I don't have their heart. He says, their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Just externals. Now, Jesus takes that very, that very uh, condemnation by the Lord. Jesus himself takes that Isaiah quote. He applies it to the hypocritical Jews of his own day. In Matthew chapter 15, he, he says this. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Now, Isaiah is prophesying seven centuries earlier. But here Jesus lifts that prophecy and applies them to the people of his day. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. And then he quotes the prophecy. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Wow. And here, these, these pious, religious, righteous Jews believed that they were worshiping the way they should be. It was all external. Their heart wasn't really in it. If their heart was in it, would they have crucified him? Of course not. In Isaiah chapter 48, again, you hear the Lord. Listen to this, O house of Jacob, you who are called by the name Israel and come from the line of Judah. Notice now. You who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel. So here are people professing to be believers. And then he goes and says, but not in, notice, not in what? Truth. How are we to worship? In spirit and in? So again, he's talking about strictly externals. We look good externally. We're, we're hypocrites but not in truth or righteousness. Jeremiah. Jeremiah complained to God regarding his fellow Israelites. He says, he says, you are always on their lips, but you're far from their hearts. Ezekiel puts it this way. Here's the Lord speaking to Ezekiel. My people come to you, as they usually do, and they sit before you to listen to your words but they do not put them into practice. 
You ever hear the old joke? Pastor preached a sermon, the congregation dutifully noted after service, pastor's a wonderful sermon, thank you very much. Next Sunday, they come back, and pastor preaches the same sermon. Congregation puzzled, no one said anything. So the third week, they come back, the pastor preaches the same sermon. Finally, one of the elders approaches the pastor and says, Pastor, we, we've noticed that you preached the, first ser- the same sermon three times. And the pastor says, yes, I did. He says, well, when, when can we move on to a new text? He said, when you do what I'm saying in this text, then we'll move on to the next one. Ooh. They sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Amos chapter 5. God says, I hate, listen to this language, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. All simply external worship. And then he says, he says, but let justice roll on like a river in righteousness like a never failing stream. He's Justice and righteousness flow from where? They flow from the heart. They are an expression of genuine worship to the Lord. So Mary's worship is, first of all, true worship is, first of all, internal. Have I made my point? You with me? Some of you? Good. Secondly, Mary's worship is also passionate worship. It's passionate worship. Notice the words she uses. My soul praises. My soul praises. Literally, the word translated from the, from the Greek is, is magnifies. It magnifies. That's where we get, if you come from a, a different religious tradition, maybe Catholic or so, you know this, this hymn, this song is called the Magnificat. And it derives that name from the Latin uh, translation of this word magnifies, praises. So the Greek word that's used, it's translated um, praise or magnifies, as I suggested. The Greek is, comes from a form of the, the word megaluno. It literally means to make great, to magnify, to enlarge. And to do that, you have to be pretty pretty passionate, don't you? To make great. A, a big deal. I want to make great of your name. I want to magnify your name. I want to magnify your name. <laughs> Is there a difference between those? Figuratively, it just seems, it, it, it simply means to extol, to exalt to celebrate, to esteem highly, to praise, to glorify. The second phrase she uses, the first one, remember, is my soul praises. The second phrase she uses is my spirit rejoices. Now that too is an interesting word. The word rejoices comes 
from the Greek verb that's in another intense verb, and it literally means to rejoice exceedingly. Now, does that sound like passion to you? To rejoice exceedingly? And it's an expression, very simply, of supreme joy. Man, when you are full of joy, when you're, when you're experiencing supreme joy, can you contain it? Not hardly. And so, that, in fact, the same word is used twice, two other places in the New Testament. Uh, I'll give you an example. Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus, we're told by Luke, Jesus exulted. He rejoiced exceedingly. Can you, can you imagine Jesus rejoicing exceedingly? Wouldn't you like to have been there to see that? And the Philippian jailer, Acts chapter 16, here's a guy that also rejoiced exceedingly. If you were the Philippian jailer, wouldn't you rejoice exceedingly if you know the account? Here's a guy that's, uh, that's got Paul in prison and they're singing, him and Silas are singing at midnight and all of a sudden the, the, the jail opens up miraculously and you know he's freaked out. There, everyone's going to escape and he's going to lose his head. And, and Paul says, no, no, don't worry, we're all still here. And, and then he gets the gospel preached to him and he and his whole family are saved. Would you exult and rejoice exceedingly? Yeah. So you get a, you get a flavor for what Mary is doing here. This is... She is rejoicing. It's a passionate kind of praise. So true worship, literally, is, is worship that is spontaneous. It, it just comes out of you. It's not a staged worship. It's a worship that is heartfelt, and it's not artificial. We want people to be spontaneous with us, don't we? We want people to be heartfelt with us. We want them to just be real, not pretending. And the same is true for God. True worship should be God-centered, not self-centered. It should be thoughtful, not just emotional. And most importantly, true worship should seek to honor God, not manipulate Him. We are masters at manipulation, are we not? We do everything. We, we are always figuring out how we can get this thing done. And very often, we, we use that same manipulative attitude towards God. We, we would never say that. But very often, you know, we work. Ever, ever try to work a deal with God? If you do this, I'll do that. How ludicrous. A ludicrous, rather than say, Lord, your will be done. I want your will. Regardless of what it requires of me, I want your will. So our worship needs to, quite frankly, honor him, not manipulate him. So we see that Mary, Mary praised God. She rejoiced in him. And she does so for what God is doing in her life, but but not only that, but for all that God would do and accomplish through the coming of the Messiah, who she has the privilege of giving birth to. I mean, she's in awe of His mercy, His grace. You can see why she praises Him and rejoices in Him. There's a third characteristic of Mary's true worship, and that is 
her worship apparently was customary. It was the custom of her life to worship. As I suggested to you earlier, no doubt Mary was raised in a local synagogue, raised in a God-fearing family, and uh, she knew God. She loved God, and she understood the scriptures. And so it was her custom, as was Jesus' custom. Luke will say that it was Jesus' custom on the Sabbath to go into the synagogue. So Jesus was, to use our language, a regular church attender. And apparently Mary was also from her youth. It was her custom. In other words, genuine worship was a way of life with Mary. Even at her young age, a way of life. Think about that. Are we raising our kids so that worshiping God, loving God, is a way of life with them? What, a, what an awesome thought to, to just raise our kids. Now, you can't force it with our kids, but we can influence them. We can lead them. We can... We can inculcate into them this desire, this appetite to be people who who worship him as a way of life, who honor him, who always put him first. Rich, rich. And we can learn that from Mary. Uh, The Apostle Paul talks about this. He says in Romans chapter 12, he says, in view of God's what? Mercy, see? His mercy to us, his grace to us. In view of his mercy... What is our only real, genuine response? He says, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, brothers, to what? Offer offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. So he's talking about a way of life of worship. If you know not God, it's not just knowing it. If you don't know his mercy and his grace, you are not even going to be motivated to offer your life as a living sacrifice in response to the great things he's done for you. He has done great things for me. He's done mighty things for me. I owe him everything, and I could never repay him. But you don't repay grace, do you? It's a gift. But we do have an obligation, if you will, to respond. And we respond this way, to offer our body the living sacrifice. The the, the tense of that verb, megaluno in the Greek, the tense is present tense. It's interesting. It's a, it's a subtle nuance. But the fact that the verb is present tense would indicate, I think, give us some, some indication that the worship that she exemplifies happens naturally. It happens continuously in the flow of her life. Subtle thing. Changing circumstances, may I suggest to you, changing circumstances do not affect true worship. Get a hold of what I just said. Changing circumstances do not affect true worship, do they? Do our circumstances change? One day we're up, one day we're down. Things are good one day, things are bad one day. Right? But these things should not affect our true worship. Why? Because our true worship is focused where? On Him. He never changes. He never changes. He is our rock. He is absolutely our rock. He doesn't change. 
nor does his word change, nor do his purposes change, nor do his promises change, nor does his salvation change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our circumstances change. He's a rock. No matter what situation, what condition I find myself, I worship Him, I praise Him, I thank Him, and I trust Him. You're God. You're sovereign. You're in control of everything. I have no place else to turn. Our responsibility to give thanks in everything. And again... Listen to what I'm saying. Our responsibility to give thanks in everything is not contingent on our satisfaction with life's circumstances. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, I just give thanks and everything's going good. No. No. Listen. Listen to what the Apostle Paul, how he instructs us. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, he tells us, always... Always give thanks to God, the Father, for most things. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For everything. You mean, you mean God expects me to give Him thanks for this? That's what it says. It's not relative. Now, you and I live in a relativistic society and culture. It's all relative. This is an absolute truth. Give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says, again, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now that phrase, in Christ Jesus, we've talked about that before. That's a phrase that simply describes a genuine Christian. I'm in Christ. I'm in united to him. I'm one with him. I am in relationship with him by faith. And as a Christian, it is my responsibility... More than that, it's my delight and my joy to give thanks, not only for everything, but what? In every circumstance. Why? Why could I possibly? That's insane. That doesn't make sense. When you know God, when you know God, and you know who He is, and you have a deep, rich understanding of who He is, His nature, His character, His goodness, His grace, His mercy, because you know the Scriptures. When you know God, you can and will give thanks for everything in all circumstances. Your worship, your worship will be a continual expression of your life. Circumstances notwithstanding. No matter what they throw at me, no matter what I go through. This is not an easy thing to do. It only comes when you know Him. Am I making sense? No matter what was happening in his life, King David, listen to this. This is another keeper. 
This is another keeper. I was right in the middle of preparing the sermon. I got a phone call at home, and it was a, a precious person who was going through a crisis, desperately needed just to... And this person said, I just need God to talk to me. I had just written this verse down. I had opened my concordance and I was looking for a verse. I, I needed a verse. I'm going down my concordance. I said, that's the verse. I wrote the verse down and this phone call came. You want to know what the verse is? Listen to this. Here's King David. No matter what was happening in his life, he could say this. I have set the Lord always before me. I have set the Lord always before me. That's not like a lifestyle. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be what? Now compare that to this. Oh, God, please be with me. Please, God, where are you? Be with me in this trial, God. Shut up. God says, read your Bible. I am with you. I have promised to never leave you nor forsake you. Quit crying and saying, please be with me. You're you're living in unbelief. You're living in fear. You're shaking all over the place. Well, shouldn't, shouldn't we ask God to be with us? No. Say, God, thank you that you're with me. Thank you that you know this thing. Thank you that you've ordained this. Thank you that you're working my life. Thank you, God. Whoa, wow. That's a little bit different, isn't it? God, please be with me. I mean to mock that because it's so egregiously wrong. I hear it all the time by people who should know better, too. Rather than saying, God, thank you. Give thanks for everything. Give thanks in every circumstance. Why? Because he is our rock. He is with us. He never leaves us. He doesn't change. We have a bold, muscular faith. Wow. Paul says we are huper nico men. Huper nico men. What does that mean? We're more than conquerors. Literally, it translates, we're super Nikes. And I don't mean the shoes. Finally, Mary's true worship is characterized by humility. By humility. There are two great hindrances to true worship. Two great hindrances. The first I would submit to would be ignorance. Man, if you don't know God, if you don't know his word, if you don't know anything about him, if he's just kind of some vague force, power, maybe person out there someplace distant, if you don't know him, if you are ignorant of who he is, that is going to hinder true worship in your life. Am I making sense? And the other hindrance, what do you think is? Pride. Pride. Ignorance makes our worship ineffectual. It makes it feeble. 
weak, insipid. Pride makes it hypocritical, which I think is far worse. Those with a, a shallow, superficial knowledge of God cannot worship Him in truth, in the fullest sense, because they simply don't grasp His greatness. I mean, when you read your Bible, you read your Bible every day, you go, oh, God, you are amazing. You are awesome. You are to be feared. You are to be respected. You are to be honored. You are to be obeyed. I see it again and again and again. You do love me. You do have a great purpose for me. Whoa! Now, would you say that that would be kind of akin to maybe passionate worship? (laughs) But the proud, the proud cannot truly worship him at all, since pride is in reality worship of moi, self. That's what pride is. It's really, it's all about me. I just, God tolerates no rivals. Do you know that? He tolerates no rivals. This is why the very first commandment, and by the way, they are commandments, they're not suggestions. The very first commandment says what? I am the Lord your God. You know the gods before me. I mean, he starts right off the just, Let me just do this. James puts it this way. James reminds us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. He opposes the proud. Let me take it a step further. In the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 16, verse 5, says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. It's not just that he opposes them. He detests them. Proud people, think about this. Proud people find it difficult to be truly thankful. Why? Why do proud people find it truly difficult to be thankful? Because they always think they deserve better. Well, how, how would I know that I'm a proud person? Well, you probably don't. You're not really genuinely thankful. You find it hard to say thank you to people because you think you deserve better from them. Ooh. There's a cue to watch for, isn't there? Proud people, here's another one. Proud people remember wrongs done to them, whether those wrongs are real or imagined. And very often they'll seek some form of revenge. I am going to get my pound of flesh. I am going to get you. You're going to know what you did to me. (laughs) It's all about them. It's all about them. Are we to keep a, a list of wrongs? No. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, Oh, no man anything but love. love. Oh, no, oh, oh, no man anything but love. I keep a list of wrongs. You take those to the cross. What does Jesus say from the cross? The very first words on the cross after they had done everything to him, nailed him to the cross, his very first words are what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, do you think those words were sincere or he's just going through the motions? It was real. 
He's hanging up there about to gag in his own juices. And he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What do you mean they don't know what they're doing? We look at each other. We say, you, you know what you're doing. Not really. Not really. We say to our kids, why did you do that? I don't know. I just did it. We want to come up with a reason. They can't. Because we can't. That's why we ask them why. I digress. <laughs> Proud people constantly mull over in their minds their mistreatment. And because they do that, that results in filling them with a spirit of bitterness which is clearly incompatible with the spirit of true worship. That's why the Bible says don't let bitterness take root in your heart. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Why? It's in your own best interest. Yeah, but I like my anger, and I like to be bitter, and I like to toss and turn all night while my partner's sleeping and snoring. The humble, on the other hand, knowing they deserve, okay, here it comes. The humble, knowing they deserve everything, nothing. Nothing. The humble, really, I deserve nothing. I deserve nothing. They recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. They mourn over their sin. They don't justify it. They mourn over it. They hunger and thirst for righteousness from God, knowing they have absolutely none of their own. Those are the truly humble. They have a profound, and I can't underscore this enough, they have a profound sense of gratitude towards God and love for Him, which must result in praise and worship. You just can't keep it in. It's like you got 10 pounds in a six-pound bag, right? In humility, Mary said, he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Literally, the word is mindful of my humiliation. Now, in that statement, she's expressing her wonder and her amazement that, quite frankly, God would just choose her. Have you ever, have you ever just sat and thought and mused and just been amazed that God chose you and tried to figure out why? <laughs> As to justify yourself, well, why, God, why would you choose me? Well, because I'm so smart. I've got so much to offer. No, you have nothing. Don't try to ring your own bell. She knew that she was a sinner. She knew that she was in need of God's mercy and grace. She viewed herself as God's what? Servant. The word is doulos in the Greek, which means literally slave. So the question is, do you and I view ourselves literally as God's slaves? Do we say, not my will, but yours be done, and mean it? Interestingly, by the way, Mary is the first person in the New Testament to identify herself as God's doulos. How appropriate. 
Remember, socially, Mary is just an ordinary girl, isn't she? She's an ordinary girl from this out-of-the-way backwater village called Nazareth that people, her fellow Israelites, actually mocked Nazareth, didn't they? If you recall Nathaniel's words, and John quotes Nathaniel when Nathaniel hears about Jesus from the other guys who are going to start following him. Nathaniel says, when he hears Jesus from Nazareth, he says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? So Nazareth was always mocked. She was from there. She was not among the social elite of Judea. She was not among the social elite of Jerusalem. Even after becoming the mother of the Messiah, she never became prominent. Yeah, but she's the mother of God. She's Mary. Shouldn't we pray to her? Well, we have to find out what the scriptures direct us to. What insight can the scriptures give us? She never became prominent. Jesus, for sure, as he grew up and as he separated, always would treat her with respect, but he made it abundantly clear to her that she had no special claim on him. If you recall the first miracle he did, where was the first miracle? The wedding at Cana, the, the water and the wine, right? So he comes to this wedding feast. His mother is there, and all of his disciples are with him, and they run out of wine. She turns to him. She says, son, they need some wine. He says, yes, mommy. Is that what he does? No. Now, he shows her respect, not disrespect. But he makes it plain to her that she has no claim on him. Listen to what he says. He says, dear woman, why do you involve me? Doesn't call her mother. He calls her woman. Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. This is not why I'm here. You must understand me. You must understand my purpose. In Matthew chapter 12, let me, <laughs> let me read this to you. This is great. This is how Jesus understands his mother. When Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Now, there's some thought that they thought he was nuts. So they're outside trying to get him out. So someone says to him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He doesn't disrespect her, but he disassociates himself in that sense. So Mary really has no claim on him. Mary never really becomes prominent in the New Testament, nor did the early church elevate Mary to any special position, or did the early church bestow any particular honors on her. This may come as a surprise to some. The only New Testament reference to Mary after the scene at the cross is recorded in the book of Acts. And she is described simply as one of the believers gathered together in the upper room anticipating Pentecost. Listen to what Luke says. He says, they all joined, meaning all the disciples joined together constantly in prayer along with the women 
and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. That is the last mention of Mary in the, Old, in the New Testament. No prominent place. She, she takes a very humble place. This ordinary woman was also engaged to a very ordinary man. His name was Joseph. Though like Mary, he too was a descendant of King David in the royal line. He was merely a common laborer, wasn't he? A carpenter. It was because they viewed his family as nothing more than plain that the average people in the town, Nazareth, would reject Jesus' claims. Again, let me read to you from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 13. And he says, When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, Nazareth, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these, and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? We know them. They're just common folk. And then he said, well, the brothers are with us, and we know the sisters. And, da, 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 da. and notice then Matthew says, and they took offense at him. We know him. We know his family. They're nothing special. But may I suggest to you, Mary's humble state involved more than just her standing in that Jewish society. It really had to do with her spiritual character. She acknowledged that she, like everyone else, was a sinner in need of a Savior. Like all true worshipers, Mary had a high view of the Lord and a low view of herself. A high view of the Lord, a low view of herself. Or should I have a low view of myself? Yes. But what about my self-esteem? I don't care about your self-esteem. If it's still all, if you're just trying to pump yourself up, rather than learning to, to take confidence in the Lord, not in the flesh. Well, shouldn't I be? Shouldn't I feel good about myself? Yeah, in Christ. Outside of Christ. You're, you're hell bound. There's nothing good to feel about that. Well, that doesn't sound like my teacher. That doesn't sound like my therapist. That doesn't sound like my, all these people who tell me I should, I should esteem myself more highly. I, I'm, I'm, I always look at myself in such a poor state. Good! That's the only way you'll get saved! I mean, just think about it. She had a high view of the Lord, a low view of herself. She was humble. She was, she took, Jesus would take what? The lowest seat. He says, take the lowest seat. Humble yourself. If she was, in fact, the most blessed among women, as Elizabeth had said of her in their greeting, if she was indeed most Blessed among women, she was at the same time most humble of women. I quite frankly, and I'm going to vent a little bit here, I quite frankly get tired of a belligerent, arrogant, mouthy women. I do. 
it's just, it's, it's, it's unbecoming. It's not attractive. You're not in competition. God has a purpose for you. And within the context of that purpose, he has a way for you to go. We're, we're teaching this group. We have a couple of groups on, on, um, on, on what it means to be a helpmate. And I've got women in that group kicking and saying, eh, this is not biblical, this is horrible. And it's just, it's vile. Ladies, I want to encourage you, be a godly woman. If you don't know what that's like, learn it. Get into your Bible. Understand. You don't have to fight for anything. Just be who God made you. Understand what that means. I'm done venting. Jesus said, for everyone who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Peter puts it this way, humble yourself under God's mighty hand and he'll lift you up. In due season, he'll lift you up. He knows what's going on. It is this kind of humility, may I suggest, that God really does not only require, but he blesses it. Listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter 57. For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. But also, I live with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to remove or revive the heart of the contrite. Man, God's promise. He's there. Don't panic. So to sum all this up, Mary's worship was true worship, I submit to you. It was true worship. It involved her whole inner being, mind, emotion, and will. Her worship was a passionate worship. She was full of joy. Her worship was customary. It was her way of life. And finally, her worship was marked with humility. Can we learn something from Mary about worship? What do you think? I think so. She was joyful. She was grateful. Why? Because of God's grace and mercy to her. Because of God's grace and mercy to her. If you and I cannot say, God, you've been gracious and merciful, and we praise you, we worship you, we thank you, we rejoice in you, something's wrong. You missed it someplace. Her humble awareness of her utter unworthiness and God's marvelous grace to her produced this praise, produced this worship from her grateful heart. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you again. We love you this morning. And we do praise you. We do worship you. We rejoice in you, Lord, for your grace and mercy to us. Lord, renew in us a hunger for your word. Renew in us, Lord, an awareness of who you are, who we are, and the vast gulf between us that only Jesus uh, can, can make a difference in. Help us, O oh Lord, to be the kind of people 
who really, truly honor you, no matter the circumstance. People who, who can truly, from the heart, give you thanks for all things and in all things because we know that you are God, you are sovereign, you never change, and your purpose doesn't change. Again, we love you this morning. Just a moment, I just want to address, if, if, you, if you're here today, you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Christ. You don't know him. I invite you to make a decision this morning. God brought you here today. You may think you came some somebody's invitation, but God ordained it. He's, he wanted you to come. And I want to encourage you to realize that if you reject Christ, you, you're only sealing your doom. You will end up forever in a place called hell. God doesn't want you to perish. He wants to save you. We go to hell because we are sinners. We sin because we're sinners by nature. By nature, we're objects of wrath. But God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants to save us. And so when you hear good news, when you hear God loves me, he wants to save me, you want to respond to that. You want to respond to his mercy and grace. And so the way you do that, very simply, is you take a step of faith. You can do that right now where you're sitting. And that is very simply to say, God, I, I confess I am a sinner. I've broken your laws and I am guilty. But I understand that Jesus died for all my sins. He died in my place. And he offers new life. He offers salvation. If that appeals to you, if that's something that sounds good to you, then I invite you just to receive Christ. And very simply to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Forgive me. I believe in you. I believe that you died on that cross. I believe that you were buried. And I believe that you rose after three days from the dead to bring new life. That whole transaction can be made simply by prayer, just where you're sitting. If you make that decision, if you become a disciple of Jesus this morning, I invite you to come after the service. Please do introduce yourself to me. I'd love, I'd love to rejoice with you and delight with you in that decision. Amen, church? Amen. Turn around another, if you would, and pronounce a blessing on each other again. Share with one another one thing that meant something to you today. It's a takeaway for you from our time together this morning. Share one thing. And then lastly, if it's appropriate, only if it's appropriate, give your neighbor a holy hug and very possibly a holy kiss. Let's stand together and sing God's praises one more time before we dismiss.